Welcome to another installment of Show to V with Mike G, the show of life, the show of so many months having passed since I put an episode out, the show of COVID, heartbreak, loss, death. Honestly, there is no topic, there is no theme that we have not experienced since I put the last episode out sometime in early April, I think. I wanted to give everybody an update. You know, I shifted to Instagram live on Show to V, you know, at Show to V. And I felt that was a better distancing measure. You know, I didn't want to set an example that I've got people over here at the house. We're sitting within close proximity and having these conversations and exposing ourselves to the dangers of the COVID virus. But that was a good format. And I felt like maybe it brought us together a little bit. But at the end of the day, it is not the same thing as seeing people in person. So I want to give everybody a little bit of an update about myself. You know, you get a little bit of that when I'm interviewing people. You know, it's been a really interesting eight months, six months, however long this has been happening for folks. And I know there is tension between us. There's tension between people that we love. We never even saw that before. People are changing, they're radicalizing, or they're becoming very upset, very sad, all Things that I understand, whether or not I support it, it's different, but I understand being sad right now. I understand being angry. I also understand being very disappointed with people that you thought were one way, but were yet another. And I I ask two things of everybody. Politics has also been really bringing us down. There's amazing social movements going on, but on the backs of such terrible events. You know, it's not a good thing that has happened, but yet it has spawned some good things. So the first thing is that when we engage about politics, let's not engage about politics. If we don't use love, understanding, and empathy to try to get to a better place, if you're using politics to create more enemies, more nemeses, it's not the right thing to do, and it's especially not the right thing to do right now. The second thing is to to be understanding of each other right now. It is an era of confounding circumstances. Some of us have lost our jobs. Some of us have lost our businesses. Some of us haven't lost anything at all. And it's a really interesting time for all of these things. But you have to understand that everybody is going through something. And I'll share one piece. Despite all the nice things that have been going on for me personally, probably professionally more so, personally, I recently suffered a very, very big loss and that my partner and I have decided to split. And I only share this because I'm not sure these are the circumstances of normal friction in a relationship necessarily. These are circumstances that we've never seen before in our lives. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're doing we potentially need to refocus recalibrate try to understand what we've got passions about 
And that brings us back to the podcast, the Show to V podcast. I love people, and I know we're flawed, and I know we're really expressing how flawed we are, especially as of late. But I wanted to take us back to these conversations I had. I have a lot of chats that have recorded before COVID and lockdown, and I think it's worth sharing these. So I am being pensive right now. I'm in an interestingly sad place, but I do appreciate you. I appreciate the community, and I still will remain positive and try to look for love in every possible avenue of my life as possible. So, here is the first interview back. Recently interviewed Sylvia Filion on Instagram Live, talking about some recent adventures in her life. She's pregnant, expecting another beautiful child, and she is doing all she can there in Oaxaca with Mescaloseca. And... Here is the first chat we had. Here is Sylvia's story as we sit on the porch of Las Perlas hearing tacos. I think there was some Van Halen glaring as well. So everything that you might expect from being back to the normal mezcaleria here in Austin, Texas. So without further ado, I bring you Sylvia Filian, the founder of Mezcaloteca. Sometimes when I come to the U.S. and they look at me and they and I say, well, I'm Mexican, it's like, how can you be Mexican? I thought Mexicans are all, you know, morenos. <laughs> and they're like, you know. You know what I mean? Like darker, right? Yeah, they're darker. It's, we kind of lose sight of how diverse many parts of the world are. Yes. And you being from Mexico, born and raised? Yes. In Oaxaca? I was born in Mexico City. Uh-huh. And I moved to Oaxaca in 2007. Oh, wow. So, so shortly before you started to form Mezcaloteca, growing up in Mexico City, what kinds of things did you study or were you interested in? I never liked, liked school so much. <laughs> I was always <laughs> autodidacta, definitely. Yeah. Uh, my parents were always scared about me finishing school. Really? Uh, but I managed to get to college, and but I couldn't decide what to study. When I had to go to college, uh, I went. It was hard for me to decide a career. Yeah. And I went for communications, but okay. me too. Just to be be honest, the first couple of years were communications. Yeah, and at that time it was a career that it was you know like hip and trendy, and yeah. but it was very. Broad, no, the things you can do at communications. Right. I was attracted to advertising at that time. Yeah. Uh, I was 20 years old. Advertisements, right? Did you always appreciate commercials, posters, banners, things of that nature, like an aesthetic way? What attracted me about advertising was all the production part of oh, it. Okay. You know, making a commercial, photography, radio, yeah. uh, talking with clients, uh, getting to know what they want, what they need. And I was very young, no? Yeah. I was 19 Point, years yeah, old. 19. 19. So, and I started to work with these big advertising companies, mostly cars. Really? Yes. In Mexico City? In Mexico City. So, it was a lot of fun. 
I was, I mean, at that time, advertising was very different from now. Sure. It was all about TV, radio. Not so much digital, right? No, at all. I mean, you started to see web pages and stuff like that, yeah. but not too much. So it was very fun for the first five years. Uh, and then I started to get tired of promoting stuff that you don't need to buy, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, here's the interesting thing. So representing these big multi-million dollar brands, did you live a pretty, pretty simple life? yourself or was it extravagant with the big house and the big car as well no i mean i was a single girl and i had my own apartment and everything was party 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 <laughs> uh, uh, so i had a lot of fun definitely Adverti the advertising world is all about connecting partying yeah. uh, creating no and getting to know a lot of interesting people also but at some point, I wasn't sure that I wanted to sell things that you don't need so much. Yeah. And that's when I started, because I've always liked to travel around Mexico. Yeah. I love my country a lot. So I was always, you know, taking my car on the weekends with my friends and going to San Luis Potosí, going here, going there. Yeah. And in 2004... I started traveling to Oaxaca a lot. Oh, yeah. Yes. Especially to the coast. Yeah. Are you, uh, did you surf, swim, snorkel, no, anything like that? Just to get away from, you know, work and the city and to right. relax. And Quieter. I've always liked to travel to little pueblos or communities. Yeah. So Oaxaca attracted me very much. And in the way to Mexico City, to the coast, I started... Uh, to know all these communities that had mezcales, traditional mezcales. Yeah. And the first time I tried mezcal, it was in Mexico City, in a mezcaleria that is called Botica. Botica. Is it still around? It, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not, not sure anymore, but that was my first mezcal experience. And I liked it, but then when I went to Oaxaca and I tried mezcales over there in the communities, yeah. I realized that there was something different from when, I'm, or from when I was trying in Mexico City. Right. Well, it's different being closer to it as well, too, right? Yes. Closer to the people, the place, the smell. Yes. I mean, you're there with the maestros mezcaleros that are producing it. And yeah, it's very different. Yeah. Uh, so I started to get very intrigued about... Why is it taste so different? And why do I feel my body so different when I drink the mezcales over here yeah. instead of in Mexico City? No? So I started to think about promoting the mezcales I was trying in Oaxaca, especially in the region of Miahuatlán. Uh -huh. So one day I decided, you know, I'm going to do my own brand. And you already had. Cause, so this is interesting. Because I've read and read and read all the interviews that you've done that I can find and none of them take what you find as a passion for process yes and for putting these individual pieces together yes. none of it draws a parallel to yeah. bringing mezcal to someone's hand so it makes it's like saying I want a more honest living yes in a way yeah, but I'm gonna take my skills you're bound to be good with people yes 
good organizing multiple things at one time? Yes. <laughs> Creative? Yes. <laughs> so then it all kinds of intersects. And it, this now makes a lot of sense to mm -hmm. me. As a creative person, do you have any mediums that you personally are creative in all on their own? Do you paint? Do you sing? Do you write? I write a lot. I love music. I'm a big dancing person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, so what kind of music to dance to? Because there's plenty of kinds, right? A lot of different kinds, yeah. you know, definitely. But at that time, it was a lot of, you know, uh, LCD sound system. Uh, the Rapture. Yeah, Rapture. Uh -huh. yeah. So. <laughs> the hip New York stuff. Colder. Uh -huh. yes. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I'm very creative. I mean, I have these ideas all the time. Even when I talk, sometimes I discover myself yeah. as a, to have a very creative way of, of speaking. Amazing. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I decided to make my own brand. I was still working in an office, uh -huh. in an advertising office. And, but I guess what made me start my own brand at that time is those trips to Oaxaca showed me how these communities were perfect societies. What do you mean by that? Just a balance? You know... You go to a ranch over there, and there's a big family leaving there, like mm -hmm. 12, you know, the parents and eight sons and daughters. And you see how everybody's contributing to keep the ranch together and working, and nobody's saying, no, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. They respect each other. They work for the same purpose. Okay, yeah. So that surprised me a lot. Because you don't see that in the States, you especially don't see that. Do you see that in Mexico City? No, not in the city. Yeah. So, and this is what, this was my idea. I mean, you know, you go to rural Mexico and they always tell you that, oh, they're very poor people. Yeah. But I discovered the, op the opposite. I actually discovered that they're very rich. Yeah. Because they have a social perfect life. They work for the same thing all together. Mm -hmm. They eat perfectly. I mean, they all ha only have organic food. Right. They have the best alcohol to drink, which is natural and handmade. Yeah, right. They breathe the best air. They have all these beautiful landscapes. Yeah. They work with the soil and they understand the earth. Well, when you put it like that... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what am I doing here? I've just started to think about it just instantaneously. But at the same time, you say you're creative with words. Do you find that you have a knack for finding exactly the right way to phrase something? Because I was hinging on every word. Yes. You must have a talent for that. I think I'm a brave person. Yeah. And I have a strong will. So whenever I get something in my mind, I definitely have a strong will and I go for it. I and I'm, not, I'm never scared. No? Amazing. So that, that way of light impressed me a lot and make me think, I want that for me. Yeah. I don't want to be trapped in the city, you know, consuming all these things that in the long term are going to make me sick. And I don't want to be stressed all the time running around. I love nature. No? Yeah. So that's what inspired me. So this love of nature, this love of naturalism, in a sense, 
does this come from some place? Do your parents embody this same kind of ideology as well? Or is it something that you came to terms with on your own in a big city, realizing it was far too big? It's something that I've always had with me when I was a little girl and, you know, they sent me to kindergarten. One day the teacher tells my mother, you know, well, your daughter never comes to school. What's happening? And my mother is like, what are you talking about? I always uh. leave her at eight. <laughs> <laughs> and then they discover that they left me in school and, you know, I... I was running out to the gardens and spent all day long in the gardens just with really? the plants you know I didn't like school I wanted to be in the gardens yeah. with the plants with nature yeah so maybe I don't know maybe something that I brought from my past life but I've always yeah. appreciated nature a lot did you ever know that in a sense you were destined to be involved back intimately with nature I do believe in uh, in karma, definitely. Sure. So yes, I think I was. I think that the opportunities that I have in this life, I made them and create them before. Yeah. So. I, you know, I have a strange <laughs> tangent, but I agree. I have this weird birthmark okay. on my right chin. Okay. And as I'm told by my mom, who underwent past life regression yeah. hypnosis. I was injured there in a past life. That's amazing. It's so yeah. it's such a weird thing. But like, the point really is, it's not about me. It's about saying, you know what? I'm open to understanding that perhaps there's more to this life yes. than this life. Yes. Right? Much larger lens to look at things. I understand working in big business, million dollar companies and saying, no, I need to do something more grassroots, more punk rock. What was it about... Atlan that really drew you to it you talked about the people you talked about the food the nature itself but was there other elements that you could kind of feel an energy um, well it's funny that we talk about past lives my my mom and my dad met in Oaxaca really and so it's kind of like a cycle that I close, you know, because <laughs> the first time I went to Oaxaca, well, I was 19 and I went with my girlfriends and we just partied and actually, you know, I didn't get to know any other culture. Yeah. I just visited Montalban, a party a lot and that's it. Right. But then in the streets, when I discovered Mezcal and I had traditional mezcal for the first time. Something make, made a click inside of me. It's hard to explain. It's sure. almost like something that it's energy, no? Something yeah. made a click and then I knew that that was my path. It's, it, it's weird because we think that connections can only be from human to human or from animal to human. I think we understand that. But what about something that comes from the earth? Yes. I agree with you. There's something transported when you drink mezcal. Something far exceeding any other alcohol. So yes. this, now you have this realization and you say, okay, okay, I get it. We're friends now. And I'm tapping this bottle, right? Yes. We're going to do something together. We yes. are kindred spirits. <laughs> no pun intended. Creating your own brand. You had to do it. Yes. How I, long did it take? It 
It was actually really fast because, you know, I work in advertising and I had my Macintosh and <laughs> I knew about how to use it. So I actually made myself brand by myself in my computer. And the name of it was Apunto de Veneno. Okay. Apunto de Veneno Mezcal del Bueno. Del Bueno? Yeah, okay. because uh, at that time nobody knew anything about mezcales. Yeah. And the mezcales I was bottling, which I was bottling myself. Okay, all right, <laughs> let's talk about this for a second because okay. that is a very special time in one's life where you have to bottle stuff yourself. <laughs> you have a single little plastic thing and you got a <laughs> wand in it and you go and you, bo you bottle. So what year are we talking when you were bottling? 2004. 2004. Yes. Before even the states really understand mezcal. Far before. Yes. So you are batch bottling one batch at a time. Yes. Where are you selling it? So this, this is amazing actually because, you know, I don't know, I bottled maybe 50 liters of some mezcal. Uh -huh. And I cut all the labels myself and I put them myself. And then I sent an email to the whole, uh, to the whole agency telling that I had a mezcal brand. Uh -huh. And if anybody wanted to try some, they should come to my desk and buy it. <laughs> so, okay, all right. You said 100 lit liters? 100 liters? No, 50, 50 liters, 50. Okay. probably. So the not so bad, 20-something gallons. So you put it in a car. Did you bottle it in Oaxaca or did you take it back to Mexico City? No, I bottled it at my house in Mexico City. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me it was in some kind of jug. Uh, no, the bottles. I mean, oh, they okay, were okay. nice bottles. I went to stores of bottles. No, but I mean like to just take the raw mezcal. Uh, yeah. It had to be a big jug, right? Or yes. some kind of... How was that? That must have been like a really special time where you're an indie artist. You know, I had this energy and this sensation of I need to do this. I have to do this. Yeah. Almost like a zombie being guided by some energy, you sure. know? Yeah, of course. And I still have that email that I sent to. Wait, did you frame it? No, but I have it there. And sometimes I read it and I go back and I say, wow, how everything started. It's amazing. That is incredible. Yes. How did your coworkers feel? about the mezcal they were interested they were interested they came and say oh Sylvia yes I want to try it you know and they did and some of them buy me bought me bottles yeah and some of them don't know I remember my boss telling me this what you're doing Sylvia is just a dream you're not gonna you're not gonna accomplish anything with this it's just you know a hobby right a like hobby just Cool. Side job. It's fine. And I remember thinking, well, maybe for you, no? <laughs> <laughs> but I felt really energetic and passionate at that time. Yeah. It's a very... Creating something from scratch. Yes. It is one of the most energizing things you can do. And it's the true spirit of an entrepreneur. Yes. Something from nothing. Yes. So... Let's say year one, year two, you selling a bit, a bottle here and there, selling enough to think about making it bigger? Yes. Yeah. And one day, um, you know, I was thinking about who can I connect that is doing the same thing, right? Yeah. Because this is, 
again, an interesting early time of yes, mezcal. Nobody was working with mezcales, you know. Whenever my co-workers at the agency were interested, they were like, oh, what's this and what is it like and how, oh, interesting. But nobody knew anything. No. Yeah. So then I started, you know, to investigate who's out there in Mexico City doing something similar. Yeah. And I found in periódico La Jor in the newspaper La Jornada that there was a column that was written by Cornelio Perez from the Logia of the Mezcolatras. Okay. Uh, so Cornelio wrote a column every week talking about traditional mezcales. So, and he was, you know, all the time saying, well, we're going to have a tasting at this place on Friday. So I decided to go meet him and take my brand with me to show him the mezcales and, you know, just make connections. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. And the first time I met him, it was in Mexico City downtown uh, in a restaurant. Um, he was giving a tasting there. And I brought my bottle of Apunto de Veneno, and I was like, hi, Cornelio, I'm Sylvia, I'm doing this. And he was like, kind of like, I'm busy, you know, yeah, what do you yeah, want? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and I was like, well, I have this mezcal from Miahuatlán, and I was thinking about, I mean, I want to know what you do, and I'm interested. And he was like, okay, I mean, you can stay in the tasting and, do, and get to know what we do. And I, I can't try your mezcal now, but you can leave the bottle with me and I'll try it. And if I'm interested, I'll let you know. Okay. And then the next day, which was a Saturday, he calls me at 8 a.m. <laughs> and he tells me, Sylvia, where do you buy this mezcal? It's amazing. No. <laughs> and then I, I started to give tastings with him in many places of Mexico City. Yeah. And at that time, I met all the people that started to work with Mezcal at that time, which were Mesonte, no? Pedro uh -huh. Jiménez, Pero, yeah. Graciel Ángeles Real oh, Minero, yes. Eduardo Ángeles. Yeah. No, we were all starting to spread the gospel of Mezcal yeah. in Mexico City. And we were organizing tastings and events and fairs. And actually, in those years, that's where I met almost all the producers that I started the, the I, that I started the project of Mezcaloteca with. Wow! One of the things that I and I, I'm I'm going to ask because I don't want to make an assumption about it. Having spent some time with Graciela and other Berta is another uh, mezcalera that I've I've recently learned about, but there's not a huge female presence in mezcal, and there could be more, of course, but did you ever find that the guard of Mascal was not accepting because it was male-driven? That is a good question. I think women have always been involved in Mascal in some way. Yeah. Maybe not making all the productions, but helping the husband when he gets too mezcaleado, too drunk, to work. <laughs> yeah. The woman comes and rescues a production and finishes it. Of, co and of course, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and commercializing the mezcal and even helping the, the maestro mezcalero, the husband, to, you know, to charge correctly for the bottle he's selling. Yeah. And, and Keep stuff him like in that. line. 
<laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, there's also in, in the traditional world of mezcales, I mean, a hundred years ago, they wouldn't let a woman into a palenque if she was pregnant, if she was menstruating, because they have these beliefs that the fermentation is going to go bad and stuff like that, yeah, which, which actually, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but maybe it is, you know, I mean, energetically. Oh, all right, I'll give you that part. <laughs> Scientifically, I'm rolling my eyes, right? <laughs> but that's the way it worked. Yeah. And, but I'm glad now that there's more recognition into how is woman is involved in mezcal. Yeah. And I've seen woman making productions, complete productions of mezcal, and it has impressed me a lot. There's also a lot of love around it. I mean, uh, there are a lot of women saying that they're producing mezcal and they're not. Ah. So, so they're taking advantage of the situation. I mean, just as anyone else this could. This happens in everything, right, I think. Right, exactly. Yeah. No? Uh, but I mean, we as women are present in everything. So yes, there's always been women in the world of Escales in many ways. And now I think it's a good time because they're going to have the chance to do more and to be recognized yeah. in a better way. So that's good. That is definitely. And that's, that is, I think it's an evolution for Escales. Right. I don't know how to feel about it. I know that most of the economic power for mezcal in the category comes from the states. Is that a is that a bad thing or a good thing that the United States are what have embraced mezcal? Now I know Europe's a burgeoning market and stuff like that, but is it good or bad that the states are really the country that's supporting mezcal economically? I think the good part of it is that we as Mexicans can share mezcal with the world. Yeah, and maybe not. The not that good that we as Mexicans, Mexicans don't appreciate the mezcales as here in the U.S. or even Europeans. Yeah. But I, I think that's part of our trauma of the conquista of, with the Spain. Right. Where they came to Mexico and they were telling us that everything was bad. We had to change everything, you know, yeah. and they... So we as Mexicans tend to see everything that comes outside of Mexico better from the things that we are producing in Mexico. But that has a story yeah. and it's logical. Absolutely. No? So at some point, Mescal, and I think this is in 2010, Mescaloteca is born. But the question is, how do you sunset one brand while introducing another? Was it a conflict for you? Was it something that was troubling to advance and evolve and change your brand? What happened is that in 2007, I decided, uh, I decided that I didn't want to live in Mexico City anymore. Yeah. That the next step was moving to Oaxaca because I just wanted to live there. And actually, um, I bought a ranch in Miahuatlán with the objective of bringing people uh, that are interested in getting to know the process of mezcal, talking to maestros mezcaleros, and eat the gastronomy of the region. Yeah. Uh, so I renovated that ranch, and my idea, you know, was get away from society and live at the ranch and sell my brand from there. 
to every part in Mexico. I see, okay. But in those trips from Miahuatlán to Oaxaca City, where I'm bringing bottles to send to my clients in right. Mexico City, I was in Oaxaca City and then, you know, went to just any bar and asked for a mezcal, and all they were serving is mezcal with a warm ah. or mezcal aged in, in wood barrels. Right. And I was trying this. Uh, um, I was trying and bottling these amazing things in Miahuatlán. And I always was thinking, why in the mecca of mezcal that is Oaxaca, you come to the city, you ask for a mezcal, and you get the worst one. Right. It's very strange, isn't it? <laughs> yes. You go to Philly, you get a good cheesesteak. That's what you expect. Yes. <laughs> so it is very, very confusing. It is. So you must have been driven by that. I was mad, you know, I was like, what are, why are they doing this? Don't they know these really good mezcales? What's happening? No. Yeah. So that's when, in my brain, I got to the idea of creating a library of traditional mezcales, a mezcaloteca, uh -huh. that can teach people about categories, plants, processes, if the worm's good, how to age a mezcal, so it was always a educational driven project. Yeah. And that's how I decided to open in 2010. So in a sense, one of the pillars being, you can drink whatever you want to drink, but if you want to learn about the thing you're drinking, come to us. Is that yes. kind of, those kinds of new, I mean, I've been to Mescaloteca, thankfully multiple times at this point in my life. And it is a curated, educated guidance through the category itself. Talking about a brand real quick. The map. The map. The, the beautiful. The Conavio I, map. That's right. Yes. That had to have been something you had thought about for some time. Well, uh, the biologist that made that map, uh, his name is Jorge Larson, and he works for Conavio. So Conavio, it's a dependency of the government in Mexico that works with sustainability and diversity of plants and different things. So I met Jorge Larson when I was promoting a punto de veneno in Mexico City. And actually he came, he approached to me because he liked the label of a punto de veneno. We were putting a lot of information on it. Yeah. Like what's the name of the maestro mescalero, what type of agave, where is it made? How is it made? Yeah. Not as thorough as, thorough as a Mezcaloteca one, but it was the only brand in that days putting all this information. Yeah. So he approached to me and said, Silvia, I, I like what you're doing. So I was always involved with all the research that Conavio was doing with Agaves at that time. And of course, when I opened Mezcaloteca, I had to have the map. Because nobody knew what an agave was. <laughs> and it's a what good tool. Yeah. It was, yeah. So. so it ends up being a great way to connect people to the place in a visual way. Yes. Which is what you do if you're good at branding. Yes. Right? Connect <laughs> them to the brand. Yes. <laughs> I also was reading too today. Have you really held back a single demijohn from every batch that you've bought? I've heard that you've been aging stuff in glass since you began at Mescaloteca. Yes, that's, that's, a good, um, that's a good thing to say. I mean, we always save, of everything we buy for Mezcaloteca, we always save at least one gallon. 
Because uh, real mezcal or traditional mezcal, it's like that. It's not young. Yeah. And it changes a lot in the glass. So nowadays, everybody is producing, bottling, and selling. And nobody is trying mezcal as it should be sure. aged in glass. Because it gets better. Yeah. It gets more balanced, more rounded. So yes, we save a lot of mezcal. Uh, so that we can bring it out to sell it in three or four years or five years. Where is it stored? Like, is, do you guys have a basement at Mezcaloteca? Yes. Oh, okay. So we it's have down there. Not at Mezcaloteca, but at Miahuatlan ah. in the bottling facility. It's so a treasure trove yes. of Mezcal. <laughs> and it's a very good tool to teach consumers about, you know, contrasting a young Mezcal with an aged Mezcal. Yeah. And why is it better an aged Mezcal? Uh, and it gets so good when you save it in glass. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that it we we are always and it smooths out and it gets creamier and all of these things. You know what? So keep on doing that. That's a great. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, a great idea, of course. Talking about the category of mescal, there are protectors, which is a very two-sided term, two-fold term. It's good and bad. Do you feel? necessary for you as someone who has been doing this a long time and kind of helped form the tastes of mezcal for the states do you feel like you need to protect it that you need to tell people the truth that you need to reveal the problems with mezcal i think that what i need to do or my mission with it is that i need to transcend with the culture of tasting extraordinary traditional mezcales and bring the consumer with it. For me, mezcal is not about selling a good liquid that tastes amazing. Mezcal opens up your consciousness. Uh -huh. It makes you drink better, it makes you eat better, and it makes you understand yourself better. Yes. So it's about that for me. Self-actualization. <laughs> it is, right? The top part of the pyramid. I mean, there's no finer drinking than mezcal. Mm. So if I understand correctly, William's a, a wonderful person, a good friend. Mescalosfera, because there's lots of destilado de agave at Mescaloteca, right? Yeah. But Mescalosfera served as to be the brand for certified mezcals in the States. Is that kind of how that came about? Or was it something a little different? Well, I met William Scanlan in 2013, approximately, but I was, I was about to give birth to my second child. Uh, and he was, he was always telling me, Silvia, you have to export Mezcaloteca. And I was like, I don't know if I want to. I mean, I think that it should stay in Mexico. And he was like, no, we have to do this. And I was like, wait, wait a year. I can't do it now. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, when my second son was born, you know, I thought about it and say, well, why not sharing this with people outside of Mexico? So um, we created the brand for exportation that it's a Mezcalosfera by Mezcaloteca. And what we do is we, we build a palenque in Miahuatlán and invited all the maestros mezcaleros from around to produce for exportation. Uh, without paying anything for using the facilities, just doing mezcal whenever they want and whatever they want. Wow. 
paying fair prices and yeah. letting them get to recognition the international recognition they deserve so it's kind of like the recording recording studio is open guys whenever you want just go yes record. we don't have an agenda with them that's amazing because that's traditional mezcal they have to do whatever they like to do yeah and in whatever recipe they want and it's something it's interesting is that i almost like how much hearsay there's been about what this separation meant but now knowing that it was like all bets are off all gloves are off you make exactly what she wants to make at our place i think that that's amazing it's like a think tank yes you started an incubator <laughs> that's what it is right the yes. startup term so there are a couple things left that i'd like to ask you before you have this amazing class here with las perlisas collective I think there's been a lot of discussion, and I know you talked about this in another podcast, but stripping the names and the information off the label. I won't ask you why I did it. That's, not, that's already out there. But how do you feel about the response to that? People saying that it was the wrong thing to do or that you're hiding something. When I started the project, I always, um, I mean, I teach maestros mezcaleros how to price their mezcalitas correctly. I've always uh, paying them fair prices. I've never been hiding anything because I've been putting out the names for 10 years almost. But what I'm seeing now that Mezcal is so popular is that these people that are coming to do new brands don't want to look by themselves. They want to use the Maestros Mezcaleros that they're out there. And what's happening is really that they go with the same Maestros Mezcaleros, the Maestro Mezcalero starts to produce more. Because, of course, he wants more money. They of always course. want more money. Yeah. And what's happening, they're bringing down alcohol volumes. They're stressing plants. Right. And they're changing the recipes. It doesn't taste the same. Yeah. And I, my mission is to protect traditional mezcales, to transcend, transcend with them in the future. So if that's happening now, I have to change things, change things yeah. to protect them. And you also have to understand that it's not just about giving money to a maestro mezcalero. Because when you do that, you're actually separating that family from the community. It's about accompanying them in the whole process of not have any economic liquidity to having a lot. Ah. But preserving their way of life and what they're doing. Right. So... I mean, times have changed for Mezcal. They're changing every month, almost. Yeah. So this is a decision that I had to make to protect the recipes and their making of Mezcal, definitely. Such and yeah. everybody can have a good or bad opinion. It's not that I don't care, but I'm, I have very clear what I need to do. It doesn't change your compass. It doesn't yeah, change no. what you're going to do, right? No, not at all. So I got two questions left for you. I'm glad that you were in Austin. I'm glad this is the first time I got you got to sw swim in the springs earlier. <laughs> I mean, you really did the Austin stuff. Good. So it sounds like. So I think about the Mezcal Fair. I think about Mezcal. And imagine that you're drinking. We have a bottle in front of us. Which is this? This is the... I can't even read it. See, it's terrible. I know it's... Which bottle do we have? Maguey Coyote. Coyote. Uh -huh. Beautiful. So Agave Americana. Is that it's, which is? They just classified it as Lioba. Oh, wow. I don't yeah. even know. That's, so you're sipping this mezcal anywhere in the world 
and you can have a conversation and enjoy a drink with anybody living or deceased, who might you like to sit down and drink a mezcal with? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, it changes for everybody month to month. It would be somebody, well, I'm reading a lot about uh, Yogananda. He was a yogi mm -hmm. that brought yoga into Occidente. So it would be him, Buddha, or Jesus. Those guys, I'm going <laughs> to put it out there. I think they knew how to drink a bit. <laughs> That's how you get through being a guy that has strange thoughts that people don't agree with i think it's an amazing answer so this is the last question for you so you've got you two sons now you said do i got what uh, two sons uh-huh yeah so as this business grows as mescaloteca continues its success in oaxaca do you feel like you want to bring your sons into the business as well to somehow carry on the legacy Well, I think myself as a mother that has to support whatever my sons want to do in life. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to support if they want to be dancers or lawyers or whatever. Advertisers. But I can tell you that they are very involved in the mezcal way of, mezcal way of living. I mean, they cultivate plants with me. Yeah. They go to Palenques all the time and they love it. So, uh, no, I'm, I just want them to be their, their selves, themselves. And if they like to work with the mezcal, I would love that. Yeah. But if they don't, I will respect it. It's, a, it's the way it has to be. Let it the is? kids figure it out. But the <laughs> peace, the stability, and all the things in between that come from mezcal, the spirituality in a sense. Yes. I, they'll find it. You know? <laughs> I just, you know, I'm not trying to predict the future, but I suspect that they'll be right there beside you working with these mezcaleros. Sylvia, thank you so much for chatting no, with me. No, thank you. It was a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I can smell the grill. I'm going to get something to eat, and I can't wait to see the class here in just a few minutes. So, Me too. <laughs> good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. So there we have it. Sylvia Fillion, the founder of Mescaloteca, an amazing mescaleria in Oaxaca. If you haven't been, you have to go. The spirits are incredible. And it's You know, the Mescalos Ferra brand, which comes into the States, it's a destilado, and it's an amazing expression as well. All this stuff and all these producers that Sylvia works with is just incredible. And I love that style from Mia Watalan. I want to point out one thing in this conversation because there have been a lot of back and forth. And in fact, I'll have an interview coming out probably next week with Eduardo from the CRM in Oaxaca, Mescal, where he kind of makes a claim and says, this is why... Sylvia removed the names of the producers off the bottles. And in fact, uh, we'll do a side by side, but it's an incorrect assertion. In fact, this is Sylvia telling us exactly why she removed those names off the bottle. So, you know, let's look at the, the facts. Let's look at what's being captured here. And this is an amazing person. For those of you who've had any time to spend with Sylvia in person, she's magical. She's compassionate. She loves the world and she seems so worldly. And it was just amazing to kind of reflect and think about that chat we first had months ago, probably even coming up on a year, if I were to reckon. So this is the first one back. I've got plenty more for you. Please stay engaged with me if you have concerns, if you have sadness, if you need to talk. 
I am here because I need to talk too. And if you can't tell, it's something that I've been doing for quite some time at this point and probably ad nauseum. So thanks everybody for listening to Show to V. No matter how you're feeling, no matter what you're looking forward to, no matter what the future entails for all of us, does it involve love? Does it involve opportunity? I'm sure it will. Thanks for listening and please keep dancing.